This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. How many of you were here for the last session here with uh, Sister Leela? If you weren't here, you ought to listen to it. It was just inspiring. And uh, I, I'm going to be there in San Antonio with that movement. And my part will be to take care of children. So uh, I won't get to see all the great medical work going on, but at least I'll know I'm part of it. You know, kind of like the drone bees are part of something. And they're, they're doing something, and it's all just... Beehives require everyone, right? Everyone has to be part of what's going on. <clears throat> Even if we don't start on time, we're going to be ending on time. They've told me that plainly, so we're going to start. Let's kneel for a prayer, and we'll begin. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be here during this period, that you would make this time useful to yourself, that your Holy Spirit would make the Bible plain to us. I thank you, and I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so I want to begin by just briefly explaining what last generation theology is, then how it relates to 1888, and then the question I'm addressing, and then I'll address it, and that will use up our whole time, okay? Uh, Last-generation theology is an idea that the last generation is going to have a fundamentally different experience than previous generations, that they are going to be, in some sense, ripe when Jesus comes back. And that when they are ripe, that is when Jesus does come back. I think you've heard that Christ Lessons 294 quote over and over and over, that when Jesus sees his image and his children, he's going to come redeem them as his own. That is the essence. What is it? 269? Page 69. I wonder what's on page 294. Yeah. Anyway, so that idea is the essence of last generation theology. It, and when you get particular, the idea of that ripeness is the ripeness is in character so that someone would have what Ellen White would call a hundred times perfection of character. And what Revelation, while it doesn't name it, demonstrates as a character that under the most severe pressure of temptation will not yield to, yield to that temptation, will not yield to sin. Do you see that plain in Revelation 13, plainly, that put under the most intense pressure those that bend to that pressure, are lost. The pressure of the mark of the beast. That is the key idea of last generation theology, that the last generation is the generation that's going to have a character that can stand through that kind of trial. What some would call sinless perfection, meaning not, of course, that they had never sinned, but meaning that no matter what kind of pressure is put to bear on them, they will not sin. Do you follow what I mean by the definition? That, now, that definition can go a lot further, and it has, and largely through the work of a number of teachers, not notable among them was Herbert Douglas, recently deceased. <clears throat> Herbert 
I think maybe more than even some others, developed this idea that this demonstration of perfection of character was an integral part of God's plan of salvation, such that without the demonstration, the plan could never end. Uh, that idea, when you add it to what I already said, would be what many people mean when they say last generation theology. That is that the last generation is making a demonstration that must be seen and that this is part of God's even original plan. And uh, if that is what you mean when you say it, well, at least you heard me say it. That's what it means. How does it relate to 1888? Uh, Jones wrote a little book, a little book called The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection. Has, has anyone here read that book, Jones's book? It's not long, right? But isn't it good? Uh, the Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection. Uh, the idea of the gospel of 1888 is that it is a victorious gospel. It is a gospel that leads to victory over sin. It does so thoroughly. And Jones gave in his sermon some of the most graphic descriptions of how Jesus is in the process of searching through your heart. He's revealing to you sin, and as you put the sin away, he's going and he's looking for a time when the very last thing is pulled out. That is his idea of the completion of the work in you. So now I think we can spend our time asking what is the question. Uh, my question to myself that I'm going to answer just in case you ever ask it to yourself, are there two plans of salvation such that someone who lives in the year 1700 gets to heaven one way and someone who lives in 2015 <clears throat> might have to get to heaven some more difficult way or some other way? Does God have a different requirement for me than he might have had for my grandfather in terms of salvation? That, that is the question that I'm trying to address in this meeting. Does last generation theology, I'm, I guess I'm telling you I believe it's true, that theology, does last generation theology amount to a change or a difference in the gospel? Do you understand the question? When I was a uh, younger man, uh, I read some books by, uh, oh, his name just escaped me, 1888 to a George Knight, there we go, by George Knight. Uh, I like church history. George Knight has written a lot about church history. I would even go so far as to say that I've learned a lot of valuable church history from George Knight. Um, he might listen to this someday, and if so, I'm not ashamed of what I'm about to say. I think he's a much better historian than he is a theologian. And uh, so I've enjoyed some of the history that I've read from him. Was that mean to say? Okay, 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 all right, all right. I just saw someone looking at me and, and with a face that made me wonder if I'd blown it. Uh, what I found in one thing he wrote, and I'm sure putting my own words to it, that's why not, I don't use slides so I can't be pinned down for misquoting people, but he wrote something like this, that the idea of character perfection, last generation theology, is a spirit of prophecy doctrine. The idea in what I was reading is that you can't find it in the Bible, <clears throat> that where you find it is in the writings of Ellen White. And that, and that 
statement, I think, was meant to imply something about it, but that was never stated, but that it wasn't here. Well, that challenged me, because if it really is true, it, I mean, if it's true and significant, I think I probably ought to be able to find it here. And that's the idea. And, uh, and I, so I got out my concordance and did what worked for me so many times before. I looked up every time I could find the word perfect or perfection or any sort of word like that to see what the Bible teaches about this doctrine. And frankly, it wasn't what I expected to find. Matthew 5.48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, is not about the last generation. Matthew 5.48 has been normative for Christians all along. It's been what's been expected from the very beginning. It's not about the last generation in any sense. And when I looked at this word perfection in many other places, I found quite a similar thing. I really didn't find the word perfection generally being used in any way that I would call a last generation context. It was just like a general, a general idea that God really expects his people to come up to a high standard. He's asking us to be merciful even as our Father in heaven is merciful. That's the way Luke says it, right? When Matthew says, be ye therefore perfect, it's like the same idea. That's always been expected. But I did find something. I want to show it to you. Let's just look at some passages. Look at 2 Peter. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3. Is there anyone here from Meat Ministry? No one from Meat Ministry? I was hoping I'd find someone at this seminar from Meat Ministry. It's why I brought this Bible, because I accidentally picked it up when I was there. And I'd give it back if I found someone. And I could take it back. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look down at verse... Well, we could... We could read a lot, but let's just start in verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, such things would include the earth melting with fervent heat, for example. Christ coming back as a thief with great noise, for example. Seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in, of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Is this a last generation time frame? Of course it is, right? That's when, you're, that's when we're found, right? When Christ comes back, he finds us one way or another. And what it says is when he comes back, that we want to be found without spot and blameless. That, those were my first cues, is that this idea of last generation experience uses some words other than perfection. And here I have a couple of them. What are the two words here? without spot and blameless. So I remembered that. Now let's keep reading for a minute. It says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Suppose for a minute that you tonight achieve this condition that could be called spotless and blameless. Should you figure that that is salvation for you according to this passage? Is becoming spotless salvation? Uh, what is salvation according to the passage? I, I mean, sure, there's more to it elsewhere, but at least in this passage, it's God's long-suffering, right? 
It's the fact that he's merciful to us. It doesn't matter how long you go, for example, without sinning, that will never atone for the fact that you sinned. It says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, I think that is of God, given unto him hath written unto you, as also, notice this, as also where? In all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. That idea really hit me. I began to wonder... Is it true that Paul, in all of his epistles, speaks of these things and that these things include among them that we ought to be found at Christ's coming without spot and blameless? Do you think we could maybe investigate that and just see if maybe it would be that way? That's what I did. I'd like you to look at a few of them with me. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 3. We're looking at verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. That verse really harmonizes well with what Dr. Lewis was sharing last period. That we ought to have a very practical growing love, the kind that like spurs us to action. But look at verse 13. To the end. You know that phraseology. It means for this purpose, right? Or for, with this result in mind. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. Here comes the time stamp. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Is it the same period of time we read about in 2 Peter 3? Does it look like it's the same condition? It's the same condition, and if you want to have this condition as the end result, does this passage give any insight into the means of how to get there? It says it would involve a growing love, right? Involve a love growing, my love for you, your love for me, but not just that, but our love for those that are without. That would be those who are not yet part of the truth, right? That should be growing. It makes me think of Matthew 24 where Jesus said in the end of time, in this very same period of time, that because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will... It made me think about that. Uh, look at Philippians chapter 1. What we're doing right now is looking at a, a collection of Paul's books because in all of his epistles he writes about something that was mentioned in 2 Peter 3, Right? It, and it wasn't something, it was plural, some things. And the things just before that included the idea of being found without spot and blameless when Christ comes back. Are you in Philippians 1, <clears throat> verse 6? Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Perform it as King James. Some versions would say, complete it. Do you have the same time stamp? You have the time stamp, and though it doesn't use exactly the same word, you have an idea that Paul was confident that what God begins, he's going to keep doing that work until Christ comes back. 
In some versions, the word complete is used, but not here. At least it looks like the same kind of things. So I'm thinking as I'm looking through these. The ones I just went over so far? So the first one I gave was 2 Peter 3. I think we began around verse 11, but I, I really just memorized chapter numbers and then wing it when I get there. Okay. And then, and then we looked at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Now we just looked at Philippians 1, verse 6. But now we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 5. It says that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. So Jesus is enriching us somehow. By some means, he's going to give us <clears throat> more knowledge. He's going to speak to us. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 6 even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now, Adventists know that at least in Revelation, at least in one passage, the testimony of Jesus is the what? The spirit of prophecy. And it would be a good question if maybe that's what it's... Let, let's just look here and see if that fits well here. It says that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that is, in the Corinthian church. Verse 7, so that you come behind in no what? It looks here like the testimony of Jesus is a gift, that it is a gift that was confirmed in the church of Corinth, and when they had that gift, they weren't lacking any gift. Do you see the idea where I'm getting this? And that that gift was enriching them somehow, maybe, for example, in all knowledge and in all utterance. The next verse. Who also, did I read verse 7? No, I, I did. Yeah, so verse 7 says, So you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have a time stamp. Those who are waiting for Christ and for his coming, it looks like they're going to have a similar experience to Corinth. Was Corinth thinking a lot about Christ's coming? You know they were because of chapter 15, right? Now that's where you have the most thorough description, perhaps out of 1 Thessalonians, about Christ's second coming. But here... I get the idea that those who are waiting for Christ's coming, maybe even those will have no gift they're lacking. Maybe one gift will be confirmed in them. That would be the gift of the testimony of Jesus. That would be the spirit of prophecy. This is the way I'm reading this verse anyway. You can check it out yourself later. But look at what it says in verse 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be what? Blameless in the Day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's that word blameless. Does it have the same time frame? It's the same time frame, right? It's Christ's coming. That's when we're going to be found this way. And what it says there, we're going to be found blameless. And to that end, God might enrich us with all utterance and knowledge so we come behind in no gift. That is, he might confirm us even by giving us that gift of the spirit of prophecy, those who are waiting for Christ's coming. That's the way I was looking at this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, the Corinthian church, it looks like, was the only church of all the ones Paul wrote epistles to that we have any evidence that they had living prophets in the first century. We get that evidence in chapter 12 through 14 where he talks about the difference between those who speak in tongues and those that have the gift of prophecy. 
Uh, you find in the book of Acts, there are a number of churches in the book of Acts that have living prophets, but none of them receive epistles except Corinth. Uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking when I'm reading it. Are you in 2 Corinthians? I'm not there yet. Give me just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm working through with you in real time the kind of thing I was finding when I was addressing the question myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and looking at, uh, hey, it's 1 Corinthians 6. No, 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 it, it's 2 Corinthians 6. It's here. I was just looking at the wrong end of the chapter. <clears throat> Look down at verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. It's the closest thing to the second angel's message you find anywhere in the epistles. <clears throat> it says, And I will be a father unto you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> Excuse my voice. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, I didn't find here what I found in other places. I don't find a timestamp that says this is for the last generation especially, but I sure do find a correlation with the second angel's message that makes me think that this would be a special time when we ought to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I don't read it just the same, but at least it's interesting. Is it interesting to you? And definitely it has the idea of perfecting holiness in the fear of God, whatever that means. Look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I think you're familiar with this verse because you've given Bible studies to your neighbors, and uh, you know that this is where one of the real strong evidences in the Bible that the gifts of the Spirit persist to the end of time. Certainly not the only, but it's a great one for that. Are you in Ephesians 4 now? So we could look, for example, at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Do you notice there's no some before the word teachers? Uh, that is just a way the translators tried to show you that it's not connected the same way, that it looks like in the Greek that pastors and teachers are one gift as opposed to two. So you have there the gift of apostles, of prophets, of evangelists, and pastor teachers. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, building up Christ's body. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You have there a time stamp of sorts. That is, when are the gifts in the church? until the work is done of building up the church. Do you see that idea? That they're in until the work is finished. It says in verse 12, or verse 13, <clears throat> until we come to the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what I'm looking for. The idea that the gifts are given to the very end, and that is when we're going to come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Doesn't that sound a lot like that Christ object lesson st statement? Like a very similar idea, but just found here in one of Paul's epistles. 
uh, the epistles where we read in 2 Peter 3 that maybe Paul speaks in them of these things in all his epistles. But what about the question of salvation? Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This was to me such an encouragement. I even have to be careful when I talk about it because if I'm not careful, I'll cry in front of you. But um, believing in perfection of character as a theory doesn't in any natural way make you believe that it could happen to you. Can anyone relate to that? It isn't, it isn't just a natural idea that because you see it in the writings that you could imagine that it might be your experience. Chapter 5, we're not going to read verses 16 through 20, but I'd like you to just kind of look at them for a minute. They don't have subjects. They have verbs. They have some adverbs. They have some prepositions, but they don't have subjects. But what is the supplied subject for verse 16? It's a three-letter word. What, what is it, you English majors? It's you, right? <clears throat> it's, it's one of those sentences where the word you is implied. That is, you are the one that should rejoice evermore. And in verse 17, you are the one that should pray without ceasing. And in verse 19, you are the one that should not quench the spirit. And in verse 20, you're the one that should not despise prophesying. In verse 21, you're the one that should prove all things. In verse 22, you and I should abstain from all appearance of evil. <clears throat> verse 23 is very different. The, the subject here isn't you. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Holy here is with a W. So what does that word mean when it has a W? Completely, right? Verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you completely, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. That word preserved sounds like that this experience of blameless is achieved not at the moment Christ comes back, but at some period prior to that, and then by a miracle of heaven, it doesn't falter as it leads up to that point. Be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it that sanctifies you holy? That's God. And in case you didn't catch the change in subjects, the next verse is very emphatic. It says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. So I can believe in that. I can, I can have an assurance that God can finish what he started. That as the author of my faith, he will also be the finisher of my faith. And in fact, I did find that what Peter said wasn't an exaggeration. That Paul, in all his epistles, writes about these things. He doesn't always talk about the last generation being blameless and without spot and holy uh, but he does in more verses than we looked at. Uh, you remember, even in the metaphor of Christ and the bride, that uh, 
he wants to cleanse her that she'll, so she'll be without spot and blameless. That's what he's aiming for. It's not just in these verses, but in all his epistles, he writes either about these things and or about Christ, his mercy, his long-suffering toward us is our salvation. The idea that there's going to be a cataclysmic end of this planet, and we want to be ready for that. He writes about all those things. <clears throat> it isn't a change in the gospel plan, and here's how I conclude that. Because from the very beginning, Jesus has required that we stay steadfast unto the end of our life. It's always been that he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. It's always been true that if you turn back from righteousness and go back to your wallowing in the mire, it would have been better for you not to have known the way of righteousness than to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto you. It's always been true that we are made partakers of Christ. I'm thinking right now of Hebrews chapter 3. I think it might be verse 12 where it says we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast our confidence steadfast unto the end. Or verse 6, if we hold that our rejoicing in the confidence, what's it say, our confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. The Bible presents everywhere that if we cast off our first faith, that that leads to damnation. This might seem like overkill to you, but I live in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, where there's a Baptist university. And this issue of once saved, always saved is like present truth. I mean, that's not even truth, but the issue is, is a present truth where I live. The Bible doesn't teach anything related to once saved, always saved. Always it's required. Let's look at one of those particular passages. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, looking at verse 35. If you are an astute and experienced Bible student, you'll recognize in this passage that Paul is quoting from Habakkuk. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. <clears throat> For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Do you see that it's, a, it's an issue of life and death whether we draw back? This probably isn't something to share with your Bible study contacts on the first two nights that you study with them. But, but I haven't said it yet, what I'm talking to you about. It's probably not something to share on the first two nights that you talk to them. But this Old Testament phrase, the just shall live by faith, the one that became the basis of the Reformation, it's about the Advent movement. That, that, it comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, and it's a reference to the fact that many people after this appointment would give up their confidence. And the idea in, in that statement, the just shall live by faith, is that the just are the ones that don't turn back. They're the ones that hold on by faith. That's the connection between the just shall live by faith at the end of the chapter and cast on away your confidence in verse 35. It's the same idea. 
To say the just shall live by faith means the just are going to hold on to their faith. They're not going to cast away their faith. They're going to endure unto the end. That's how it's always been. That is all that God requires. What I mean is we walk by faith. He counts our faith for righteousness, but he does require that we keep walking by faith. That's always been the condition. And in the end of time, if you carry out the same condition that your granddad carried out, it's going to lead to a different end. Turn to Mark, and I'll tell you where in Mark when I remember. Chapter 4. <clears throat> Mark, chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 26. Much better. Mark 4, verse 26. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep, and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow. He knoweth not how. For the earth brings forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, Excuse me, after that, the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. What's he talking about in this parable? The kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God like? <clears throat> the kingdom of God is like Apollos is sowing or Paul is sowing. They're sowing the word of God. But according to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul and Apollos don't give the increase, right? They don't give the increase. Now, I don't understand this parable all the way because it looks like that the person who sows is also the one who reaps. Of course, that's true for farmers, but that's not how it works here on planet Earth in terms of the harvest. That is, we can sow and we can water. God gives the increase, but do we do the reaping? So... My understanding of it needs some refinement, but I'm telling you how I follow this parable. It's about the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, there is a sense in which the seed is perfect even when it's a seed. There's a sense in which the seed is perfect when it sprouts up. There's a sense in which the seed is perfect when it starts to put out an ear. The sense in which the seed is perfect and the plant is perfect all the way along by perfect, of course, as a farmer, you'd mean disease-free, no pests. That's what you mean, right? In some sense, it's perfect all the way along, but you don't go and harvest it when it's six inches tall, a corn plant. No matter how perfect it is, it isn't perfect in the, in the sense of harvest. It, this perfect is the perfect God has always required. He has just always required that we obey. He's written these things so we sin not. If we sin, we do have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. But he has never wanted us to think so much about that that we forget that he wrote these things unto us so that we sin not. That is, anyone who really tries to take advantage of the fact that there's an advocate is not going to get any advantage from the advocate. So 
the ear grows. But there comes a time when the ear does reach perfection. Okay, you don't like the word, but let's just call it something else. It's ripe. Isn't that what it says in Mark 4? It's ripe. And when it's ripe, that tells you something. At least the farmer it tells him something. It's time for him to, to reap. <clears throat> Does that remind you of anything in Revelation? That's chapter 14. Chapter 14 draws its metaphor from here in Mark chapter 5. If you're not familiar with it, or even if you are, it'd be good for us, right? Let's go back to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. I'm going to preface something I say by something that will save it from being, so it won't be so mean. Um, you can be a godly man doing a godly work, <clears throat> teaching people all over the world, and teach something that is false. At the same time, you teach a bunch of things that are true. And the same, in the same time you teach something that is false, it doesn't mean you're an ungodly man all of a sudden. <clears throat> it rather means you're human. That, uh, so if I tell you that some people you love and respect are teaching something false, am I telling you that they're wicked teachers? I hope you're getting this because I'm about to, to point fingers at people without naming them. Anyone who says that Christ must come back by 2030 or 2031 doesn't get Revelation 14. Anyone who's putting a time limit and saying that Christ must come back by a certain date, that it has to be within a certain number of years of 2008. I heard someone preach that about three months ago because of, our, of the economic disaster in 2008. Therefore, within a certain number of years, it has to happen. No, 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 no. It, listen. There is no farmer who is going to read in his almanac that today says it's time to harvest the corn and look out and see that it's all green and go, time to do it. Right? What does James say? That the farmer has long patience. He's waiting for it to receive the early and the latter rain. Of course, it's not that he's just waiting for rain. What's he really waiting for? He wants it to be ripe. Are you in Revelation 14? In this Bible that I got from Meet Ministry, Revelation 14 is like on five different pages. And um, <clears throat> to verse 14. We could have read verse 13 because that's the, verse 13 is what's going to really mess up that second Adventist health study at some point. That at some point, the Lord is going to be laying a lot of people to rest. A lot of faithful people. And at that point, the statistics regarding what you gain from a vegan diet are going to get really messed up. <laughs> does, does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? And if, if God is already doing that, then that's, that you're not going to see the full benefit. I don't know if that makes sense to any of you what I'm saying. But the Bible is very clear in Isaiah that the righteous perishes... And no man lays it to heart, none considering that he's taken away from the evil to come, it says there. That might be 56, but I'm not really sure where that's at. Revelation 14, after verse 13, where a lot of the faithful die, but they're blessed. Even though they die, are they blessed? They're blessed. It, it might be they never were ripe, but they died, and they're blessed. 
because God never required of anyone that they be ripe. What he required is that they be faithful unto death. But those that don't die, what, he, what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that is God going to finish what he started? That he can complete it? He can preserve us blameless even unto that second coming? We, could, we read that. So we read in verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap. Does it speak here about some giant clock that just clicked midnight? Why is it time for thee to reap? The harvest of the earth is ripe. That's why it's time to reap. So I think the world will end before 2030. But it won't be because a clock. It'll be because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And if the harvest of the earth isn't ripe, then the world won't end before 2030. It'll end, in other words, when you read Revelation 7, where it talks about the seal of God, and I think you know there's a connection between the seal of God and last generation theology. The relation is that the seal will not be placed on the forehead of anyone who has any cherished sin. Anyone who has not gone through this experience that we're talking about here, the work that comes through having a growing love, for example, taking advantage of the gifts. We read that. Didn't we read that, that the gifts have everything to do with this experience? In other words, God made provision. He did all the work. He's shining enough light to finish the work. And if we hold on to the end, the work is going to get done for us. Let me review the gospel thoughts I've shared because there are some gospel thoughts here that your grandparents needed. Many people in the generation before me became very discouraged with last generation theology. They believed it, but it didn't match their experience in any sense. And they had an idea <clears throat> that if Christ comes back right now, I am going to be lost because the work isn't done in me. That's not Revelation 7. Revelation 7 doesn't say, too bad for my servants, they don't have the seal of God. What's it say in Revelation 7? Hold until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. Of course, Revelation 7, the metaphor is taken from Ezekiel 9. And in Ezekiel 9, it's when the one with the writer's inkhorn, it's when he comes back and says, the work is done. That's when the command goes to those that have the destroying weapons to go and do the work of destruction. I'm just trying to say in so many ways that this doctrine isn't obscure, that George Knight is wrong. It's a Bible doctrine. And the gospel that's in it is that God lays on me burdens that match me. He created me. And how can I illustrate it? Some of you have children. You would never give your children, I mean, when they're seven or eight or nine years old, you would, you would never give them the job of repainting the living room. 
right? You, you ask them to help you clean the kitchen. You ask them to wipe the table. You might have to do it after they do it, but, but you ask them to do something that matches them, right? I'm trying to illustrate that God is our Father, and he laid some burdens on us. He said, pray without ceasing. He said, rejoice evermore. He said, abstain from all appearance of evil. He said, don't despise prophesying. But he never said to us, completely sanctify yourself. We can't bear that. That's too much. If we even try it, we're going to make a real mess. He said, faithful is he who called you who also will do it. That's part of the gospel. The other gospel we read in 2 Peter 3 is that he's long-suffering. So when I was asked to speak at GYC this session, maybe you don't know this, but Dr. Moore and I were asked to have one session together, the two of us, but that message never got to Dr. Moore. And when he found out, he'd already prepared six lectures, so that's how we ended up having two. And so it was just a blessing all the way around to me. When I was asked to to co-share with Dr. Moore, we were asked to talk about the connection between 1888 and why Christ hasn't come back. Well, here's the connection. 1888 had a gospel that was very thorough, and it included a victorious experience that if people would hold on to that experience, would allow God to send his latter rain, would allow him to finish the work would allow him to wholly sanctify a people, would allow him to lighten the earth with his glory, would allow him to give such power that in a short time the gospel would go to the far reaches of the planet and to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people in a better way than it's gone so far. That it would go in a really effective way and then the world would end. The reason Christ hasn't come back yet is because the sealing isn't done. The reason the sealing isn't done is because we haven't let it be done. And the gospel of 1888 is the everlasting gospel. It's the everlasting covenant that always has worked. And with the same kind of light and power that God is showing to us, if it had shown on our grandparents, and if they had been faithful, it would have had the same effect on them that it's going to have on us. The work would have been done. It would have been completely finished, and we would be ripe. I think I have three minutes left, and I've said everything that was on my list of things to say, so I'm just going to say it all again, and then we'll have a prayer, and we'll be done. Perfection of character is an Ellen White doctrine. She says a lot about it. You can't be a strong, confident believer in what she's written and not believe in it. <clears throat> you can't even be an honest, confident reader in everything she's written and have the kind of soft idea about it that some people teach that it only means being very loving. <clears throat> you can't because she says too much. But it's not true that the doctrine originates with her. It's in the Bible. Jesus has a bride and he wants her to put on her beautiful garments. Jesus 
can accomplish what he wants. He's not just the author of our faith. He's the finisher of it. And he has given us a number of passages that specifically mention Christ's second coming that talk about being blameless, being without spot, being faultless. We didn't look at all of them because we were in Paul's writings. But don't you know the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation and the 144,000 stand faultless before the throne. Zechariah talked about the same idea. I'm just trying to say it's not obscure. And when, and when people treat this idea as if it's strange, I can only say it, there was a veil over the eyes of the Jews because they didn't want to see Jesus as the Messiah. But there's still an, uh, a veil over people today. It's taken away in the gospel. Am I trying to put a burden on you that you must become perfect? No, I think it will crush you. I'm, putting, I'm trying to ask you to take on you a simple burden to be faithful. You can't even do that by yourself, but you can imagine doing it with Jesus in you. You can imagine his power working in you to keep you faithful. And by you depending on his promises, holding on to him the way a child holds on to a father, by you holding on to him, he will hold to you more firmly than you can hold to him, and he will complete what he started. I'm so glad for that. You're so glad for that. I'm a very weak person. So, so I need the promises. I'm so thankful that we have them and that we can depend on them. We can as Sister Neblet said, lean hard. Amen. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your long suffering that you have not come premature before the work was done. And I claim the promise that in the days when the seventh angel will begin to sound, that the mystery of God will be finished. The promise that the remnant of Israel will do no iniquity. Your promise that we will look upon Jesus whom we have pierced and we will mourn for him as a as a father mourns for his only son. Would you please use the gift of the testimonies to finish the work in us? Would you please use a growing love in our experience so that we could be found without spot? <clears throat> Would you of your kindness sanctify us wholly and then preserve us body and soul and spirit unto the coming of the Son of Man. I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, 
visit us online at www.gycweb.org.